0: good to see you again ask you to turn your bibles to first corinthians 15 so many things to be thankful for this morning i'm thankful for our guys and ladies in the sound booth y'all don't know how many times i leave my microphone on while i'm singing and they are quick to hit the mute button (laughs) so gosh they do a great job save us all but uh, good, good to be back here again. I was excited to get back after last Sunday to be back here in the pulpit to preach again from God's word. And this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, the last verse of the chapter, verse 58. These next few weeks are going to be action packed here in the life of our church. And I could not be more thrilled about it. You heard uh, on the rundown that next week on May 1st, we'll be gathering together. Uh, and I'll be kind of laying out a vision for the future of our church and what we think we need to be doing as a, a body. And just to give you a heads up on it, at the heart of it, is reaching more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then on May 8th, I believe, and May 8th and how that works, is Mother's Day, the most important day of the year. hope mom's look, listening now. Uh, May fifteenth will be our Equipped Sunday, and Dr. Uh, Albert Moeller will be here preaching for us that Sunday. So we're looking forward to that time together. And then the next Sunday is Graduation Sunday. So four weeks here in a row of just uh, of kind of diving into these Sundays, thinking about what's going on in the life of our church. We're looking forward to it. Action packed. A lot of stuff going on and we're thankful for it. At the end of our service today, there'll be a quick update from the personnel committee, a short video, so don't be surprised. I'll ask you to sit real quick. It's about a minute and a half, and that'll be short at the end of our service uh, when it's concluded. So a lot of stuff happening, a lot of great things happening in the life of our church, and the best thing that happens for us is we get to go to God's Word together. And so uh, considering 1 Corinthians and what it means, I was thinking this week of quite a few uh, phrases or sentiments that we use in everyday conversations that are attributed somehow to Scripture, but they just aren't there. You may know some of these. I was looking at Lifeway Research, and they kind of got the top 10. I'll pick out a few of them. For example, uh, the phrase, God will not give you more than you can handle. That phrase is just not in the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us he won't let us be tempted beyond our ability. But quite often, we find in the scriptures that there are countless cases where someone faced something they could not handle. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace, something they could not handle on their own. Or you think of even Daniel going into the lion's den. Or you think of all those things God gave them clearly in those moments more than they can possibly more than they could possibly handle, but God handled it, and God handled it victoriously. Or you think of the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. This, my friends, is a phrase I wish you would never use. It's the exact opposite of Scripture, the exact opposite of what God's Word says. In fact, it came from what we found from Benjamin Franklin and poor Richard's almanac. In fact, Romans 5.8 that we quoted earlier, while we were yet sinners, With no power to save ourselves, God saves us. And so these phrases here, or the other one, this is my favorite, I've heard this my whole life, cleanliness is next to godliness. That usually means mom is trying to get you to do something you don't want to do. And I'm encouraging you keep on using it if you want to. I would never take that phrase away from you and the power that it contains. But it's just not in Scripture, and don't tell anybody it is, okay? And as the Apostle Paul is considering these things, there's another doctrine here, or there's another statement that is often said that is just not biblically sound. The Apostle Paul is constantly demonstrating against the opposite of this. And that phrase is this, don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. Many say this because doctrine seems to bind them up in some ways. It's not freeing. It binds them up in in learning doctrine. Or or doctrine can be tough to to understand, and it seems to, to separate people out into different groups, into different things, so don't give us doctrine. Or the idea that doctrine teachings and beliefs are not practical. They're not everyday things we can use. Therefore, don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. But the Apostle Paul just spent an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 spelling out the doctrine of the resurrection. And having been secured, how we have been secured through the resurrection of Christ, we too have been secured in our own resurrection from the dead and been made alive. And then, as was his custom throughout his letters, he brings it right back to the very practical nature. What does this mean for everyday life? If Jesus has been raised, now what does this mean for us? We use words, we use words uh, in, in Christian talk that sometimes are, are kind of there that we don't use in any other place. And like orthodoxy. We know that word orthodoxy. Orthodoxy just means right belief, right? It means right belief, and it leads to orthopraxy, right action. Right belief, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, right action. In other words, for us as believers, we understand that the practical nature of the Christian life is built upon the doctrinal nature of God's Word. You can't act right until you believe right. That becomes the whole point that Paul is saying. You can't act right until you believe right. As my friend Kevin Smith in seminary told me, your theology better match your duology. And here Paul is saying this very same thing. If this is true, if this doctrine is true, now this changes the way we behave, the way we act every single day, all the time. It changes our thought processes, it changes our our attitudes, it changes our hearts, it changes our actions, it changes it all. If Jesus truly is alive, Paul says, then that changes everything for how you spend your time. How you spend your time. Your orthodoxy, right belief of the resurrection of Christ will change and make it, bring it into your orthopraxy, your right action for everyday life. And here, that case becomes clear with verse 58. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. All of that is doctrine. And that doctrine is what we build our life upon. It continues even as we pray. Jesus ascended, Jesus reigns, and Jesus will return. All of that is doctrine. And that doctrine is how we build our lives. These truths matter every single day. A Savior, a Savior who died for us, who was buried and rose again, that same Savior is coming back for us. How now shall we live? And Paul, after discussing that entire doctrine of the resurrection in chapter 15, gets to verse 58 and he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth, your doctrine. And we ask, God, that you would help us apply that to our hearts and our lives today so we may live in honor of you and your glorious name. God, we come. Uh, as I said earlier, in desperate need of you. So give us grace today with your presence. Teach us to know your word and help it to mold us and shape us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. After all the discussion of doctrine that had gone on, the Apostle Paul gets to verse 58 and he begins it with therefore. Therefore, a word that simply for him means now what, right? Right? Since all of this is true, now what? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for your everyday action? What is that therefore, therefore is what they teach you when you're trying to understand the Scriptures. It's important. Why is that there? Paul is saying all of this has built the case for what I'm about to say. All of this truth has built the case for what I'm about to lead you to and help you to understand. And in this one simple verse, the Apostle Paul is going to be absolutely practical for the believers in Corinth to understand how they should live now in light of the resurrection of Christ. And he goes next and he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers... Understand also in this time period, in this place, that word brothers is in the plural, and it would have been used to bring together everybody in the the body of Christ there. It's a collective way of saying brothers and sisters. In fact, some translations have used it that way, saying everybody here. So he's given this, my beloved brothers. Paul is saying he loves them as family. My beloved brothers and sisters. That's important for us here in the book of Corinthians, this first letter. Remember the trouble that the Corinthians had had. In fact, this whole letter is answering a a handful or two handfuls, 10 really major issues within the church that had struck this church and just kind of ripped it and robbed it of its power. These 10 issues go from things like uh, factions within the body where some are saying they belong to Christ, some say they belong to Paul, some say they belong to Cephas. Paul has to deal with this in the first couple chapters. Sexual immorality of of a, a, a terrible or deviant kind is happening within the body and not being dealt with. Paul has to deal with that in this letter. People are acting out there in worship, not doing what is in accordance with order and not doing what God has stated and, and causing unbelievers to stumble. Paul has to deal with that in this letter. There's been a distorted view of what love means. Paul has to deal with that in this letter. They are abusing the Lord's Supper. Paul even says they're abusing it in such a way that some of them have even died because they have abused this. He has to address it that in this letter Paul states that on some of these issues he's got to treat them as though they are carnal he says like you're worldly you're acting of the flesh on these things Paul is writing the Corinthians and like I said I got some friends who pastor churches like Corinth Baptist Church I was like man that must be a tough one who names it that you know Because Paul is sitting here and he's battling the Corinthians over one issue after another. They're suing each other and he has to say, stop it. Y'all have to quit. Y'all have to quit. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad we're not like that here at Taylor's? Perfect church. Amen. Perfect place. Got it all in order. We don't have any of these issues. Obviously. That's tongue in cheek. If you're a guest here with us today, I was joking. Every church has to deal with these things. Because what are we? What are we here? We are a bunch of sinners who have been saved by the amazing grace of a resurrected Savior. We're a bunch of broken people that God is putting back together again through the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, we will expect these things to happen. So I find it very comforting when the Apostle Paul looks at these Corinthians who have screwed up in so many different ways and he says, you are my beloved brothers and sisters. He doesn't say you're out of it, you're done, you're toast, you're no longer in the body, you aren't Christians anymore. He doesn't say that. He says, no, you are my beloved brothers and sisters. Get these things right or there's terrible, terrible things to happen, but you are my beloved brothers and sisters. You have gone from sinners to saints to siblings now, as my friend says. We are family together. We stand on these things together. And after all of this that Paul had laid out, all of this uh, dealing with all of these issues, Paul calls them brothers and sisters. And I think it's it's of no thing for us to miss that he ends these 10 issues. The last one he deals with is the resurrection. The last one he deals with is chapter 15 here. 16 kind of lays out some final instructions, kind of some things, but, but 15 kind of ends that body of the letter where the last one, after all of these issues the Corinthians have done, he ends it with the issue of the resurrection last. And I think he does this obviously on purpose so that he can end the body of the letter, if you will, with verse 58. All of the ethical all of the spiritual, all of the moral issues that they have dealt with have a basis on which they rest. All of them fall back to. The reason why it's important that you don't claim a faction with one leader over another is because Jesus is alive. The reason why it's important that you don't fall into sexual immorality is because Jesus is alive. The reason why it's important that you don't mistreat the Lord's Supper is because Jesus is alive. The reason why it's important that you that you don't, uh, you don't, Go into worship haphazardly, acting as if it's nothing and you can do it how you want to because Jesus is alive. And the reason why we celebrate, Paul says, all of these things is because we have this rock of truth, this rock of doctrine by which we stand upon. And though life is tough, it's full of many dangers, toils, and snares, persevere, Paul says. Persevere. Persevere. Because you are built on the truth of God's word. And he gives then three commands to the brothers and sisters at Corinth here. He says, be steadfast, be immovable, and be abounding. Be steadfast, be immovable, and be abounding. Simply put, he says, because Jesus has conquered sin and death, be steadfast. Be steadfast, he says. Be steadfast on this. What does this mean? The word means to stand firmly or solidly in one place. That's what simply be steadfast means. It's the same word or sentiment that we find back in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Paul uses this this idea of standing over and over again in his letters, telling us this is, this is where you rest. This is where you plant yourself. This is what you put yourself on. Jesus uses that same ter- terminology whenever he talks about building your house. Where do you build it? Do you build it upon the sand when and, and storms and winds can blow it down? Or do you build it upon the rock? Do you stand there? Paul will say it again to the Corinthians in chapter 16. Stand firmly in the word. He's telling them, this is what you have to do. And so to be steadfast means we stand firm. We stand firm in the Bible and the knowledge of it. In order to stand firm in the scriptures, you must know the scriptures. You must study the scriptures. You must look to God's word. You must seek after this to know what it is and how it is your life is is understood and it is built. We must stand firm in the Bible and knowledge of the Bible. We must stand firm in doctrine. Christianity is not a matter of opinion. We may have it wrong sometimes in how we understand some things. Sure, we are, not fall- we are not infallible. The scriptures are. But many may try to convince you that this is all opinion. This is just one way. This is just one possibility. That's your opinion how things work. But when you read the Bible and you have knowledge of it, you come to understand that it is exclusive of all other opinions. Either Jesus is who he says he is or he is not. And if he is who he says he is, then all other gods, if you will, of this world have to fall by the wayside and bow themselves to the one true and holy God, Jesus Christ. So it's not necessarily just opinion that Paul is giving here. He says, you got to stand firm in the truth. The Bible and doctrine are not simply a piece of clay that you can form into what you want it to say. Oftentimes when people try to describe liberal Christianity, they say it is led by a Christ that looks a lot like us. In other words, we try to form Christ into our image. We try to make him into something we feel comfortable with. We try to mold him into something that that we can accept, that we like. And so we look at God and we look at Christ and try to make him into something that, that makes us not feel uncomfortable, but feel okay. We can handle him. We'll take that one. But you see, that's not what you do with God's word. We are the clay. He is the potter. And he shapes us. He molds us into the image of the Son. We don't mold the Son into our image. He molds us into the image of the Son. And he does that through Scripture. He does that through doctrine. And Paul says, don't leave that. Stay right there. Stay right there. Stand firm in God's Word. Stand firm in doctrine. Stand firm in character. Stand firm in character. The resurrection is the ethical, uh, or, or is the ethical ground for the Christian life. The ethical significance of the resurrection means this is how we are to live. Right in the middle of this chapter, for you to look at, in chapter fifteen, if you if you turn back over in my Bible, you got to turn over. You look look at verse thirty-two. The second half of that verse, right in the middle of this chapter, on the resurrection. Paul shifts and starts speaking about character issues, right? He says, okay, he's making an argument. If Jesus has not been raised, then let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, party. If Jesus has not been raised and there's no purpose here, then just do what you wish Let your appetite satisfy you. Try to fill them with everything you can, sensuality, all these other things. Fill your life with this. See if that can work. Eat and drink, because tomorrow you're dead. And what he means by this is just live how you want to live. Do what you want to do. If Jesus is not alive, then let your immorality flow. There's no reason not to, he says. But he goes on. He even gives this next one. I've heard this a million times. I don't know if y'all have. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. Y'all ever heard that before? My grandma, I think she had that cross stitched on the wall. But this is the way we put it in the South, right? You lay down with dogs, you're going to get fleas. Ultimately, Paul says, why does that verse in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15, did y'all know it was there? I mean, why would bad company corrupt good morals be in the middle of a chapter where he's arguing about the resurrection? Because Paul is saying, Paul is saying, if Christ is still dead, then it doesn't matter how you live. Nothing matters. Just do what you want to. Stay with the bad company. Eat and drink and be merry. Tomorrow you die. If Christ is still dead, it doesn't matter. But if he's alive, if he's alive, then we don't fill our sensualities and our appetites with the things of this world. We fill it with the resurrected king. If he's alive, then we don't follow after those with bad morals and lay down with them. We stand up for what we believe and what's true. Paul is saying... Because of the resurrection, it determines our very own character, nature, and life and how we live. If Jesus is alive, then we follow him, we obey him, we pursue him, because if he's alive, that means he's king of kings and Lord of lords. And that means everything he said is true, and everything he's done is true, and he's the one that's worthy of our worship, and we worship him by living a holy life pursuing after him. Change in your position on this doctrine would surely mean a change in the way you act. And that's why we say when you come to Christ and you believe in him, you don't leave the same way you came in. Because you've been changed by the resurrected king. The The doctrine changes the way we act. Changes the way we live. The orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. The good theology leads to good duology. Because that's what Paul is saying happens. This matters with every step we take that our Savior is alive. Be steadfast. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, he says, you should be immovable. Immovable. This is what we must do when our steadfastness is on trial. Whenever our steadfastness is on trial, someone's going after the doctrine, someone's going after the word, someone's going after our character when our steadfastness is on trial, Paul says, you be immovable. The barrage of this world will be to get you to move from your position as a Christian the attacks that come. Whether it's to deny the Bible, they'll try to get you to do that. Whether it's to disbelieve a key doctrine like the resurrection, they'll try to get you to disbelieve that. Whether it's to live in a way that dishonors the Lord, that's what they go after all the time, right? They want the believer, the devil himself, is looking to cause us to stumble and to fall in our character. Why? Because when we stumble and fall in our character and our lifestyle, then that demonstrates That one of our key beliefs has been lost. And if we've lost one of our key beliefs, then that demonstrates we're no longer anchored to God's word and to his truth. He's trying to destroy. All of these are connected from how we understand scripture to what we believe in doctrine to how we live every day. And all of these will be under attack if you're a believer. The devil will go after them. But Paul is saying, Know what you know, and knowing it, cling to it. Know what you know. Know the truth that you hold to. Know the facts that you believe. Know what the scripture says. Know what you know, and in knowing it, never let go of it. That's what Paul is saying. Don't let go of these things. Don't let go of these truths. Don't lose them, because you know what you know, and you know it to be true, and that barrage will come. Don't let anyone entice you away from the truth by which you stand, Paul's arguing. The devil is relentless in his attacks. He's relentless in his pursuit. It's like a two-year-old baby wading out into the ocean when that one wave comes up and knocks them down. You know what I'm talking about? And before they can get up, the next one comes and knocks them down again. And before they can get up, the next one's knocking them down. And over and over before they can even stand never happened to my kids. I'm always watching them and taking good care of them. But it becomes relentless over and over again, wave after wave. And the moment you fall once, don't think you can get up and take a breath and say, oh, that was bad. It won't happen again. You should know it's coming after you harder the next time. Paul says, be immovable. Stand upon the rock and cling to it. Stand upon the truth and don't let it go. Jesus is alive. Don't let that go. Our disciples didn't let that go. In Acts 1.8, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, says, You are my witnesses, right? Witnesses to what? Here is the resurrected Jesus standing before him. You are my witnesses. Witnesses to his resurrection. Witnesses to his truth. Witnesses to all these things. He's standing. You see me. You know this. You are my witnesses. And what do they see next? They see him taken away on a cloud. And then they hear an angel come up and said, why are y'all staring up into heaven? Just as he went up, he's coming back. Now you are his witnesses. That word witness is the Greek word for martyro. We transliterated that word. Why? Because every one of the disciples were killed because they believed in Jesus and proclaimed him. So it just became the word martyr. John, you say John wasn't killed, surely, but he was exiled off into an island, left to die. They're martyrs for the sake. And if we are to come and and to give up so easy, why were they martyred? What is worth dying for? What's worth dying for is the truth. We believe there's something worth dying for as believers. What's worth dying for is the truth. And they clung to that truth, even to death. They clung to that truth because they knew, they knew That just as Jesus rose from the grave and just as Jesus is the resurrection and the life, they knew even when the spear came or they were hung upside down or their head was chopped off at the very moment life was taken here, they will be raised anew again in heaven with him. They clung to that. They knew it and they held to it and they were immovable. Paul says, that's us. Be that person. One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is John chapter 9. Here's this blind man who's been sitting by the pool, his whole life begging, his whole life hoping someone would help him, just give me something to eat, give me some sort of a dime or penny, you know, give me whatever you can possibly give me. He's sitting there and finally one day Jesus walks by. And y'all know what Jesus does. Jesus does what Jesus does. And Jesus came and he healed the man. And now he who was blind now can see. And Jesus told him, go tell everybody. Well, the Pharisees caught wind of this. And so the Pharisees call in the, the formerly blind man into their mix. And they start questioning him. Who sinned? They go after his morals, right? Was it his mom or his dad? Who sinned on this thing? They go after the morality here. Or then they go, do you know he healed you on the Sabbath? That's breaking the law. And they just go after the blind man over and over. And this blind man's been left beside the pool forever. He's been out here. Nobody cares about him. He's not educated, not anything else. This blind man takes this barrage from the Pharisees, just question after question after question, and I can kind of see his face, you know, one like this and the next one, and he just keeps going, and he says, finally, look, guys, I don't know what y'all talking about. I don't know what you're talking about when it comes to who sinned this or that. I don't know what you're talking about when it comes to your Sabbath laws. What I do know is I was once blind, and now I see that's what I know. Cling to that. If you're a child of God, what you do know is you were once lost and now you're found. If you're a child of God, what you do know is you were once searching and hoping to find something to give you a little bit of satisfaction, but in reality, you were feeding on the husks of this world and they'll never satisfy you. But when you found Christ, you found the living water that satisfies you every moment and every day. Hold fast to that, Paul says don't let them move you from it. Don't let them move you from it because Jesus is alive. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. Let me give you another phrase. Idle hands are the devil's playground. Paul says, stay busy. We got work to do and whatever it is you do, he puts it in the Lord, right? Whatever it is you're doing, whether it's your job, whether it's being a parent, being a spouse, being a son, being a daughter, whatever it is you're doing, do it in the name of the Lord. Why? Why do you do it in the name of the Lord? In fact, this is kind of translated. If you take this out, he says, be outstanding. Excel at this. Excel at doing what is right. Be outstanding at doing what is good, Paul is saying. Excel in your labor. There's work to be done. So whatever that work is, do it in the name of the Lord. Lord. And as we work in the Lord, the distractions of this world become less and less desirable. As we work in the Lord and stay busy in his work and we put everything to him and we honor him with every step and every job and everything we lay our hands to, as we do that, the distractions and the temptations of this world become less overwhelming to us. We can handle them better when we're in the work of the Lord. Jesus defines us. He defines our work. He's what gives me my identity, right? I'm a child of the king. Everything else, just some stuff I do. My identity is found in my Savior who has redeemed me and saved me. And forever, we have been united for all eternity. And I, you can't know Josh Powell apart from the one who saved me and redeemed me. You can't know who I am or what I've done apart from Jesus. He's at the very heart of who I am and my identity. And so Paul is saying, when that's the case for you, you should recognize that all of your work and all of your labor is to glorify him. To honor him, Jesus defines us. Jesus gives us our identity. And whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord, for your labor is not in vain. He says, "Success for us as believers is not defined how the world defines it. The world defines success by the success by the bottom line: how much money can it get you? How much can it attain you? How much can you grab?" But the Lord looks at Joshua and says. Be courageous. Don't turn to the right or to the left of my word, and you'll have success everywhere you go. Success in God's word is defined by obedience to the one who saved us and redeemed us. Don't stray from that word. Because Jesus rose again, we seek to do what lasts, right? Why do we waste our time on things that don't last? We build up our character as a person. Why? Because we're eternal. We're going to live forever. We're going to prepare ourselves for glory. Because Jesus rose again, we do for him what lasts. Do today, as you've heard me say this before, and it's something I think about quite often. Do today what matters 10,000 years from now. That's what Paul is saying. Everything you do, do it for the Lord. Because just as he rose again, he will return. You've heard these last four weeks of sermons from 1 Corinthians 15. I have found joy in these. Thinking again of the fact that we don't serve a Savior who's dead but is alive. And what that means for me. And what that means for my kids. And what that means for my family. What that means for you. What that means for our church. What that means for life every day of walking in victory. Jesus is alive. And if you've heard these four weeks, my simple question to you is this, do you believe that truth? That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Do you believe Jesus is alive? Do you believe it with everything you have? Then you cling to it. You hold to it. You never let that truth go and let it define you for eternity. Let it define you for eternity. And if you don't believe it, then by all means, today is the day. Today is the day to say, Jesus is alive. And how do I know? Because he lives in me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. It is so good to us. And we praise you for a resurrected Savior. God, Jesus lives. And so, Father, help all of us to live in light of that truth to build our lives upon that doctrine that Jesus is alive. And if anyone is here today and they haven't wrestled with that truth or today they are wrestling with it, Father, and they they realize they've never truly submitted to the resurrected King, the one and only Savior, I pray that that's exactly what they will do even now, that they'll believe. And Father, I pray for all the other saints in this room, my brothers, beloved brothers and sisters. Help them as long as as well as myself, to be steadfast, to be immovable and to be abounding in your work for your name. All of us we pray in light of our resurrected king. Amen. let's stand together.